Good afternoon and welcome to Hudson Institute. Um, founded in 1961 by strategist Haman Khan, Hudson Institute challenges conventional wisdom and helps manage strategic transitions to the future through interdisciplinary studies. On behalf of Hudson's South and Central Asia program, I welcome you to today's talk on India at 70, reminiscences on the rise of an economic power. Seven decades after independence in 47, India has become the world's largest democracy and is predicted to become the third largest economy by 2030. India is a labor force of 500 million plus, a middle class of almost 300 million, and a market capitalization of, over, of, of almost 2 trillion. Yet, India still faces vast challenges in terms of poverty, infrastructure, bureaucratic red tape, and more. To discuss this, we have with us today former Governor of Reserve Bank of India, Dr. Y.V. Reddy, and Dr. Alyssa Ayers, Senior Fellow for India and uh, Pakistan and South Asia at Council on Foreign Relations. You have their detailed bios in front of you, so I will not read them out. What I will say is that it is an honor and a pleasure to host Dr. Reddy, who knows my family actually going back four decades or more. Um, it is also wonderful to have my good friend and CFR scholar, Dr. Alyssa Ayers, moderating. Um, before I hand it over to Alyssa, I'd like to mention that Dr. Reddy's book is available um, for purchase at the end of the event, and the author will sign it for you if you buy the book. Thank you. Alyssa. Part in this discussion today with Dr. Y.V. Reddy. Um, you have the program in front of you, but let me just note a couple of highlights of his bio so you're aware of the expertise with which Dr. Reddy is able to look back on India's 70 years of economic growth. Uh, he served as the 21st governor of the Reserve Bank of India, and for those who are not familiar with the RBI, it's India's central bank. Uh, but very unusually, he also had a prior to his work in the RBI, uh, a very long uh, and illustrious career in the Indian Administrative Service, during which time he also served in the Finance Ministry. So he has seen India's economic policy making, including at some very seminal moments of crisis for India, from different sides of uh, that policy making table. Uh, as you see in his bio, he rose to the position of Secretary Banking in the Ministry of Finance, which is a very senior uh, role. And he has also served internationally as the executive director for India and other South Asian countries. I believe it's Sri Lanka and Nepal and Bangladesh uh, at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And he also served earlier in his career at the World Bank. So he has seen India's own internal policymaking on economic affairs, as well as its relationship to international financial institutions and the kinds of policy questions that they confront. There's perhaps nobody better to look back on India's emergence as a major economic power. Uh, we're going to be able to hear from him today his own reminiscences on India's 70, 70 years. Uh, let me just offer a couple thoughts on his book before we have uh, a little bit of a dialogue, and then we'll open it up to discussion. Dr. Reddy is going to speak for about 15 minutes uh, before we do that. But I'd just like to note that this, this book is really quite fascinating. It's a memoir uh, from the perspective of somebody who's been involved at all the kind of major crisis moments that you can think of. It, the book spans India's own independent journey as Dr. Reddy remembers his involvement in many of these events. Uh, India's path from uh, being a socialist economy with a planning commission being centrally planned 
to its gradual transition to becoming a market-oriented, uh, outward-looking economy, which is now the world's seventh-largest economy at market exchange rates. This path of the last 70 years in India has unleashed greater prosperity. It's lifted more than 160 million people out of poverty in the past decade or so. Indian companies now compete on the world stage like any other conglomerate. That economic journey for India, of course, is not yet complete. Uh, despite India's economic growth, the country still ranks in the bottom third globally in terms of per capita income. So there's a lot more work left for the country to do to help raise living standards and bring that prosperity to the rest of the country. But this is a remarkable book that provides insights into the decisions that India has made over the decades and gives a sense of, of how it might make decisions in the future. We'll hear Dr. Reddy's insights on Indian institutions, whether it's the government, the finance ministry, the central bank, how they handled many crises that they faced and also averted many others. Um, there was a quote that you have in your book, one that I really appreciated, where you said, it's sad that people are seldom aware of crises that have been averted. We learn a little bit about some of those that have been averted uh, in his book. He also offers some lessons, which I'm going to ask him about when, after he makes his remarks, uh, in how to navigate the tough bureaucracy in India. He's got some tricks of the trade for his own. So with that, let me turn things over to Dr. Reddy. Uh, please, we look forward to your remarks on your own book and then to engaging in a Q&A. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. You've been very generous. Uh, my book in some ways is basically my version of what I could see, what I could feel. And in early parts, of course, partly I depended on, uh, on a second-hand. Uh, but by and large, it's a first-hand account of uh, things that I was involved in. But, uh, I, so in a way, it's not a rising economic power in a global type of situation. I mean, that's, that's inferred, perhaps, but from my point of view, I was just trying to say how the nation, I was, I was part of the way India moved from 1947. So in preparation for this, I said, what should be the nature of interaction? And then I thought that uh, general impression is that suddenly India blossomed and became a high-growth economy because India embraced economic reforms in 1991. That's the general impression. It's the, it's the reforms of 1991 that has produced the high growth. Partly it is true, but actually it's, it's a longer journey. It's a longer journey, and many things have happened to stabilize the systems, establish the systems. And then this is how it resulted in, and you do not know how the future will be. I tried a periodization, and that's what I'm trying to share with you. I would uh, divide uh, the journey first is make India. India, when, when, when we got independence, as you know, only 60% of present India was administered by the British. The rest were princely states. Technically, they could become independent. They had to offer India or Pakistan or whatever it is. So first, it was the requirement of consolidation. And then there was a partition, which was disruptive. There's a post-war problems. And many people at that point of time, 1947, if you recall, many people felt that India will not survive as a nation, as a country. In fact, I think Selig Harrison's famous book, India, the most dangerous case in 1960s, he said either India should become authoritarian or it will break up. There is no other choice. And that was the main theme at that point of time. Uh, so, but I think over a period, 
uh, we have reached a stage where there is an assertion of regionalism, but at the same time, there has been some sort of an integration uh, of the country. So I would call that phase as make India. And in that, I think the design, we should give credit to the design. The design is that you have a union of states. In, uh, in the Constituent Assembly, I would advise anybody who wants to know the, con the concept of India, how it was developed into a real country, is that it is neither a federation nor a uh, unity government. It's a union of states. And Dr. Ambedkar, who, who, who gave the speech while uh, introducing the constitution, draft constitution, he was educated in Colombia and London, of course. And he compares the American system, British system, federation, unity government, and finally establishes how you have to create a federation without knowing what the constituent unit will be. So the, states are, so the states are created by the federation after the federation is created. It's a unique system. And that, I think, is the managing of uh, diversity in a framework. And that is, I thought that that is a unique thing that, that, that has happened. And uh, again, what should be the basis on which the states should be formed in India? One view was on the basis of language. The other view was no. Language will be disruptive. They'll fight with each other, as it happened in Europe. This was the discussion. Since no agreement was possible, it was left open. But over a period, that was started out. And let me take the second example of uh, language. Here is a country whose official language is spoken is that of the colonial rulers, and spoken by less than three percent. That's the official language of the Union of India. At the time of independence, it was decided that we'll allow English for fifteen years, and then only Hindi will be the official language of the Union. And then there is resistance, and there is self-immolation. Again, first time, I, I, I think, where for a, in a political system, how do you make a point? And in Madras, the people poured kerosene over their bodies, burned themselves as a protest, and this created a furor. And the matter was finally settled that English will continue till the non-English speaking people are ready for it. So I think this is, it is not rigid, it's a series of compromises and flexibility uh, through which a consolidation has happened. But more important, we have to recognize the dividend of peace. 47 wars, 62 wars, 65 wars, 71 wars. After 70, we, we didn't have a war. We seldom calculate the cost of war. So I, I think the, the whole period of 47, 67, we had the con, uh, configuration of drought uh, and, uh, of course, the devaluation along with the drought. These, in, in spite of this, there is, a, there is a continuous growth of around 3%. There's Hindu rate of growth, but in that situation, I thought the whole period should be viewed as something which, is, which should not be viewed as 3% growth alone, but 3% growth plus building of a nation's institutions that can survive for 70 years as a viable federation, as a place where reasonable stability can be expected. Uh, the second phase is something where I will say managing India. Some people call it mismanaging India. Actually, I think 70 to 90 is the period where in some ways we did not catch up. If you see 47 to uh, 72, in fact, there's a lot of contribution from ESA, mm -hmm. of, uh, of, uh, uh, Food Foundation. We had Rockefeller um, active, IIMs, IITs. Sponsored by US, uh, it was open. 
I think the whole idea of inward-looking type of situations came up between 72 and 90. Uh, and therefore, there can be a debate uh, whether that was right or not, but that was a confusing period. And it's after 91, once serious problem came, the growth started. But interestingly, the highest growth in India from 1990 to 2014 was during coalition governments. Coalition governments, single government majorities, high coalition governments. So in, in a way, it's consensus-based, it is slow, but nobody could take credit or debit. But collectively, they delivered growth. Generally, the impression is that this should be political. In fact, 30 years back, there's a debate whether dictatorship is better or democracy is better. And here is the situation, at least in India's situation, it appears as though a coalition produces better results than a strong government, in, at least in Indian context. Thank you very much. Great. Well, let me turn and ask you some specific questions so we can pull out a little bit more from uh, your, your many reminiscences in your book. First, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows, because I learned for the first time when we were just chatting before coming in here, the predecessor to this book was actually Dr. Reddy's autobiography written in Telugu, yes. which was the first uh, of his volumes to come out. Uh, last year, correct? Uh, January, yeah, January. In January. So he's got the Telugu version, and then you did the English version, uh, looking back on your decades in service. I do want to ask you about the 1991 balance of payments crisis, because you do provide some insights into how that was handled. Uh, the late-night armored car heading to the airport in Mumbai, getting a flat tire. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, which I had not previously read anywhere else? Um, first, of course, as far as writing in Telugu is concerned, I was educated uh, in Telugu up to college, and I, it was a formal in the subcontinent, I presume, in those days, at least for people from non-metropolitan areas. And I always felt dealing with people, talking with people uh, in mother tongue, uh, adds to certain informality. And any creative thinking also. So that's why I, I, when the publishers were keen that I write my autobiography in English, I said, no, first I want to write it in Telugu. You feel, when I feel in Telugu, but I can think in English maybe. Okay. Then I, I, so the way I used to it is if I want knowledge, I approach it through English. But if I want to wisdom of weighing different factors, so I fall back into my. In fact, one, one quotation also I gave, the, the type of thing, and particularly in the, in, in, in the cultural ethos that that's, I think it adds. And in fact, I enjoyed writing my Telugu, except the version. Telugu is what is, uh, whether you're a car, taxi driver, car driver, barber, you talk to them. So, and what many people don't understand is, I think the circulation of some of the Telugu or Hindi dailies is more than the total circulation of Indian papers in India. But much of the thinking of global think, global idea about India is derived from 2%, which is common in India, Betras, Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, English-speaking papers, and you get an idea of what is happening in India through this. And and I think I would say that, when somebody in an office in RBI, they ask, sir, how do you, Get this type of thing, feeling that is something different. I said, look, 
Every day, I start the day with a Telugu newspaper. I ask them, how many of you read anything other than English newspaper? Most of them read only English newspapers. Most of them read English newspapers, which is spoken by 2%. And the so impression of India, if you want to get it, so that, that, I, I rest my case there in the first question. Second question, BOP crisis. Uh, the, the, the interesting part of the BOP crisis is that, that BOP crisis happened for three reasons. One, we were vulnerable, 1980s, we were vulnerable. Uh, the type of reform, we knew that there were problems, we worked while modernizing. The way I would indicate it is Rajiv Gandhi wanted to modernize, but he wanted to do it painless. So he liberalized in a way that he had to live on borrowed money and borrowed time. And then by the time corrective actions could be taken, political instability came and nobody was prepared to take the decision. So in, at an at a analytical level, at a professional level, World Bank, IMF, India, all of them were on one. And this, with a, actually, there's a lot of mutual influence. The general impression is that India had a totally indigenous design of reform. It's not exactly indigenous design of reform. There was always an interaction between intellectuals. Almost top economists have been working here or interacting. And when it is designed by our economies, it was accepted by the IMF. So there was no doubt about what is to be done in India. How to do it, that's the political consensus. That did not come about. The vulnerability got into a problem. Two things happened. Russia broke up. So 20% of our external trade was Russia. And then we had a Gulf War. So the, it triggered a crisis. And we didn't have time to correct it. It triggered a crisis. And the crisis happened at a time there was political uh, instability. There is political instability of coalition government, so nobody was there to take action. But the remarkable thing, I believe, is, and professionally, all of us were there before. Before the crisis, during the crisis, after the crisis. There is Manmohan Singh, Monte Carlo, Aliyar, everybody who is involved in the crisis management, they are there. But the remarkable thing is that it's such an unstable political situation. There is political consensus for whatever actions were being taken to manage it successfully and get onto the reform. And uh, there I found, for, in that period of 90 to 93, 90 to 93, I worked on balance of payments with three prime ministers in three years. Three prime ministers, three finance ministers, ministers, three governors, three finance secretaries, three chief economic advisors. But there was no tension. There was tension, there different ideologies. But when it came to managing the crisis, so I think that uh, was a defining moment. Uh, and, and then it followed, as, as, as I said, uh, there are continuous coalition governments, but still didn't matter. You also speak about, speak, you write about uh, the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis and concerns at the time uh, about rupee volatility and administrative measures, yes. in your words, that uh, the government and the RBI put in place to prevent uh, rupee volatility and protect the Indian economy from what had happened throughout Southeast Asia. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Because India w w emerged from this unscathed. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting situation. Because that was the time when capital account convertibility wasn't fashionable. But everybody said you must liberalize capital account. You must liberalize capital account. I still, I'll, little story, I still remember uh, attending a conference. Secretariat 
they, they said these are the things to be done, etc. So I said, look, all these things, the maximum money is going to China, which does not satisfy any of these criteria that you have described. So we, in a way, try to say that we have to go gradually through capital account liberalization. We made a distinction between current account and capital account. The intellectual framework was, yes, current account can be free. Future obligation is a problem. From that day till today, we still don't allow short-term debt except for trade purpose. Uh, so in 96 itself, we had in position certain uh, framework where we had control measures. Secondly, the pressure was to remove controls. Our point was, no, you should keep the power to control, not assume that government will always do bad things. You must have power to control, but you should not exercise it, but say that I will exercise it when necessary. So much of the reform was exemption from the controls rather than removing. Third is, any time you deregulate, information is important. So some of these basic principles were used. And so when uh, the Asian crisis happened, but only one interesting thing I must tell you. Uh, on the run-up to the Asian crisis, we could see that our rupee was slightly overvalued. So as deputy governor, I gave a speech. Rarely a, go a deputy governor or a governor will go and say that my currency is overvalued. You're almost triggering a crisis. I did that. But the point is, it was done very carefully, discussed with the ministry, though everybody disowns it later. Every sentence was clear. That's one part of it. But, it, but more important is, after two days, the prime minister gave, gave an interview where, without realizing, he said something different. And then what do we do? I think I explained in the book. What we had to do is, Prime Minister can't deny because it was recorded. So we said the army denied that the Prime Minister did it. So we said the reports have occurred, but that is not something like that. So because the Prime Minister couldn't deny. From then on, all this is before. So we allowed, in a way, we allowed the fourth rupee to depreciate rather than wait for a crisis to correct the valuation. That is the second thing. Third, once the crisis started, all these administrative measures basically means controls. And we, every, but only one thing is said, whenever we impose control, we said this is being done temporarily for six months, for one year, because this is an extraordinary. Nobody can deny that it's an extraordinary situation. And then, in fact, sometimes I, I remember various criticisms at that point of time. Uh, uh, but now, after the global financial, I was amused to find exactly what is called unconventional measures or something. And the crisis happened here. But when the Asian crisis happened, uh, unconventional measures are considered inappropriate at that point of time. Uh, but I think uh, also uh, magnitudes, perhaps, India was not vulnerable initial. We didn't have such open. So in two ways. One is the problem was not as acute as East Asia, because we're not that open. Uh, and at the same time, we are in a position to manage, uh, anticipate problems, take some corrective actions. And when the crisis was hitting, uh, there is a continuous uh, interface. So that is what I would say is we manage the Asian crisis. You managed another potential crisis that ended up not really being a crisis at all, and that was uh, the imposition of economic sanctions right. uh, on India in 1998 after the nuclear tests. Uh, you, you discuss this in your book, and you also discuss developing a pretty unique form of a bond. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Uh, yes, uh, that uh, in, in the context of research in India. In yes, the, the research in India. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did, um, the two issues that came up, after nuclear uh, sanctions, we got the, uh, the, 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 the issue was what should we do. So we had to discuss, and there between the owner and I, we discussed whether we should give an assurance to the markets, because the markets may go into dizzy. So should we give an assurance that we will take care? So we had difference of opinion, and my view was, no, you don't know the magnitude of the problem. So you, either it's not credible or you may not be able to deliver. So let's see how it goes. And what I did say is, it may also provoke if somebody imposes the sanctions. And the same day you say that, look, I will make sure that nothing will happen to you. Mm. So there's no need to do that. Let's watch and see. So there's one of those cases. Earlier we used to take anticipatory actions. Yes, we did not uh, do that. But what we quickly did was uh, we quickly calculated the, the possible impact on the capital account. That is capital flows. What is the amount of capital? The, the sanctions essentially affect the finance more than anything else. So when we calculated, we calculated that this is likely to be the gap. And that gap we had to fill up. And therefore, we raised a special bond. Now, the whole special bond is not exactly a sovereign bond. So we, we raised the money essentially to non-resident Indians. The difference between raising in the open market and non-resident Indians is the open market, they go with credit rating. This was very unusual, wasn't it? The first time to raise a bond from the Indian diaspora. It was not the first. first time actually was done with Amnesty in 1992. It was done. But here it was done without Amnesty. It was done in the face of sanctions. It was done because we knew that formal credit, because the formal credit rating and because the, which were downgraded and because the sanctions, all organized funds will not give me money. Give me money. No organized or no fund which is under any regulator will give me money. So I have to raise money from unregulated court. And they are the non-resident Indians. And the non-resident Indians at least know that India will not default. At least they are, I, I expect that they have, especially because of the track record of 1991. 1991, a lot of NRAs took away the money. And there was a proposal to freeze their deposits, which we did not give. So there is a credibility. So that was my argument. Uh, that uh, that you and well, other thing what we also did is while while assigning the task of uh, I mean distributing to the various financial intermediaries raising a bond business uh, we tilted in favor of uh, heavy U.S. institutions so after all when there is money there is always a way of finding business uh, there. So that's what we did, and uh, it worked. It worked smoothly. In not a defiant manner, let me put it there. We were very careful to say we're not defiant, but we have to manage our affairs. And uh, yes, because of credit rating, because of sanctions, banks can't give, but banks' customers can give. And in fact, in the case of some of the well-to-do NRIs, they leveraged actually they borrowed from the banks. They borrowed from the American banks, but the risk was taken by the uh, in a way by the equity of the NRS. So we had to devise from time to time. So let me switch uh, gears a little bit and ask you uh, about some of the, the personal tricks of the trade that you offer in the book. And I encourage everybody to take a look at these sections in the book. First of all, um, one of the things that you talk about uh, and something that you're quite passionate about 
is what you refer to as blurring hierarchies wherever you work, blurring the hierarchies, doing this through the use of different languages. Um, in many different cases, you're, you're actually bridging different worlds. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how you did that at the RBI? Uh, early, um, early in my career, first let me explain, first f five years, in my service, I had eight transfers, eight transfers. At the end of the, my career, I had one job for five years. With different, so I think over the period I learned to survive. The first, one of the first things I learned when I was a junior officer uh, around that time, uh, one of in a conference, uh, the big, big boss said something inappropriate. And I was furious. And I said, you should not talk like that, sir. And he looked daggers. Then I realized my mistake. And I simply said, sir, my humble submission is that, sir, you should not talk like that, sir. He laughed. <laughs> so first thing I learned is, if you want to dissent, be pleasant before dissenting. This, this is the advice and dissent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so first and I can add, whenever you want to give advice, you say, actually, actually, it's yourself meant this, sir. So the whole problem is very often for many people uh, in the hierarchy, it's, uh, it's the, uh, it is the ego, uh, I think it's the problem, uh, very often. So I think that's the first thing that I learned. Uh, it's not in the tricks of the day in that sense, that's one thing which I want. Second is very often the differences arise because of some hypothesis. Uh, or wrong facts. Uh, so I always find it useful to go back uh, to the fundamentals. And most important, I suppose, is trust. In fact, when I used to uh, have negotiations, World Bank, very complex negotiations, in one case, the, in one case, finance minister Anton record uh, that for outstanding negotiating abilities. Then I was told, how do you do that? I said, no, I simply tell the truth outside the office. So there's a negotiation fine. Right? Take a glass of coffee. I say, boss, my boss is not accepting this. <laughs> you help me. Uh, this is this is the problem. So, because we're all human beings, uh, so that's the way I, I would say. Um, there's no particular trick, I suppose. Well, you do have a couple tricks in here. I've got to say, including there was apparently one time you uh, gave some remarks that the then. Uh, Minister of State for Finance was not too keen on. So he asked to see you. Yeah. So you made a practice of informally inquiring whether he was in the office whenever you were in Delhi. And whenever he was out of town, you would put in a formal request to see him. And this went on for several months. <laughs> and by then he forgot. <laughs> you see, because another thing is, see, when you get, people get angry, somebody gives an input. So that's because highest priority item. Is, so whenever there is a difference, if it is not, a, if it's not, if there is no need for, a, there is no compelling reason to resolve the difference. The time is the best healer. Mm. So in, in a way, um, you you say you avoid. In fact, I, I, I very often, as at a middle level, I used to get calls from the ministers, and when the minister calls the collector, uh, he tries to impress the people around that he's able to talk. So invariably in those days the telephones were not good. So my standard trick was the moment the, this, the, this voice 
and the tone and tenor, I can see whether somebody else is present or not. So if that is, they say, I'm not able to hear the lines, what, what, I'm not able to hear. After two, three days, things will. So I think basically, if you ask me, let me say what the trick is. Ego, more important time and context for any issue. Time, uh, I suppose, the, the timing. I always avoided unpleasantness. Uh, but be truthful. There's several uh, recollections of tricks of the trade in the book, which are uh, extremely interesting. Let me switch gears um, for a couple other questions before we open it up uh, to the room. You know, you've got some examples in your book, some of which have relevance to issues today. For example, you do speak about the fact that it was an issue of concern that you you and your colleagues felt that the credit rating agencies didn't rate the Indian sovereign in the way you felt they should have. We hear this complaint today. What do you think accounts for this uh, difference between the way Indian economic policymakers see India's sovereign and the way it's rated externally? Um, see, the... It's not anything new, but over a, over a period it has been observed that credit rating agencies have, in some ways, their business, if you want to be in business, if they are very strict in doing credit rating, then they won't get out of business because they are really, they are, they are making a living out of the money paid by the people to whom they are rating. Mm. That's one. Of course, they have got a credibility issue. There's, the other problem is that, in reality, there's not real competition uh, in the global financial markets. The market means that there's competition. In the global financial system, credit agencies are four, auditing agencies are four, news agencies are two, so I think with what they, whatever their perceptions, it goes. So, so in a way, but we we have to accept it. We have to accept it. And finally, what happened? U.S. government was unhappy with the credit rating, and the SNPC would lost his job. When U.S. government is unhappy with the credit rating agency, CEO loses the lost his job. Of course, when we are unhappy, of course nobody will lose the job. That's different. So the, so the point that a sovereign being unhappy with the credit rating agencies was unusual some time back. But many things changed after the crisis. Many things changed after the crisis because for the first time, what was happening to developing countries happened into advanced economies. And then there was a realization that, that the, the truth is not exactly what we thought, but somewhere in between what... Uh, the advanced and the developing countries have been thinking. So that's the way I, I'll put it. It's, at that point of time, it would have sounded odd, but now. Now it's a more accepted <laughs> understanding. Um, you know, you describe in the book how the RBI was a r an early pioneer in financial inclusion. This is a, a topic that we all hear a lot about now, uh, but you were working on this a couple decades ago. Uh, you also write about your belief that finance, and, and this is a quote from your book, finance should be a service to cater to the needs of the common person. So what do you think more uh, can be done to help extend financial inclusion in India? 
Before that, let me come to the concept itself. I'll, I'll okay. mention that. Sure. How many of you heard of the word financial inclusion before the global financial crisis? It was not there. Inclusive finance was once one word used by SA and the UN Secretary General. Before 2008, in the global forum, it was the first time the financial inclusion became a global agenda after the global financial crisis, G20 meeting. It was very, there was a recognition that finance being the way finance was dealt with, it resulted in a crisis. A lot of money is being spent. And therefore, financial inclusion got into mainstream because the context of global financial crisis. And in a way, some respectability had to be given in responding to the financial crisis, in my view. Earlier, there were occasionally the concept of financial exclusion in the U.S. also, that some people should not be deliberately excluded. You know, but what happened in our case is, and at least uh, my per perception of things is, for me, the first thing I wrote also, first thing is how to ensure that transactions, uh, my servant maid wants to send money to her son, or my driver wants to send money to his father in the village. That should not cost money. For him, it's very precious. If I, so, I thought that financial transactions are different from credit. Everybody is interested in credit because of the leverage. That's where we started the whole idea that, and there should be a place where they can keep themselves safely. So the, my idea was that money and finance is not entirely a business of, uh, uh, for the financial sector. The people should be able to, just as I give money to facilitate transactions, and we started as common person, and so we used technology, and I went to the extent of saying that I have given a license, we have given a license to a bank to accept non-collateralized deposits, which is uh, a special privilege granted. And therefore, I have every right to ask them to do something in the service of the people. And cross-subsidization and public utility is not unusual. Why should it not be for finance? And thirdly, if there is some uh, subsidization required, for instance, in ATM, we made all ATM transactions free. If the currency has to be given to the people free, then why not take disbursement of the currency through ATM? So we made it free. Because for, uh, for, and today, all the people send money. Very interestingly, there's no money order anymore in India. Most of the, the, elderly, most of the people in South Asia would know money order. It was, you pay some money to take. Now they don't. They simply put the money in the banks here and give the ATM number. And they'll draw the money. Then they change the ATM number for the next transaction. So in a way, uh, and incidentally it so happened, again we experimented in Andhra Pradesh, the cash disbursement uh, uh, took by the government. So the intermediaries could be removed. And so we experimented in Babur Nagar district. In other words, the whole process was, my approach was, I am not dealing only with money and finance. I'm dealing with the people vis-a-vis -vis money and finance. That's it. That's fascinating. There's a lot in this book on these questions. Um, I'm going to ask one last question, then we're going to open this up for a general discussion. Um, there are several examples in your book where you, in uh, your RBI years, worried about risks of financial crisis and took kind of uh, preventive measures. And that was certainly the case. Uh, you write about taking preventive measures, seeing quite early on that there was a risk of crisis in the United States, in the U.S. housing market, early 2008. 
So looking out ahead today, what do you see now as some of the biggest risks that you would worry about on the horizon? Today. Today. Oh, that's <laughs> that's tricky because I, I'm not very contemporary. <laughs> um, but first, let me explain about the crisis. Uh, two things. My and at that time, it's not that we, I alone knew that there were risks. Most of the central bankers smelt, recognized that there are risks. The issue was whether they should take action, whether they should say that there is a crisis in the anvil. So I am perhaps one of the few who decided to take action rather than allow the market to clean and lean, you know, that mm. sort of stuff. So it was uh, not a lack of awareness uh, at that point of time. Um, Secondly, we more formally got prepared. In 2008, January itself, we prepared contingency plans. Nothing unanticipated at all. Now, coming to the current situation, the first question we have to ask is, have we reached the new normal? There is a global financial crisis. Something very serious has happened. There are certain causes, macroeconomic imbalances, uh, too big to fail, whatever it is. And then we are... And obviously, the pre-global financial crisis system is not sustainable because it resulted in a crisis. Some changes are required. How many changes have occurred since then till today? Is there a new normal? Have we reached a new normal? I'm afraid not. So in some senses, the crisis has been managed, but new normal is perhaps not reached. So therefore, uh, I, I am not I, I'm not anticipating a crisis because we are already the world crisis is still not over. Mm. In some senses, the world crisis is not fully sorted out. Uh, so I think the struggle is now to come to the new normal. So whether it will be delayed, but I think the recent initiative taken uh, by Federal Reserve, at least giving them uh, an assured um, path to withdraw the stimulus. Uh, I think that, uh, now perhaps your question is whether the withdrawal of the stimulus itself will trigger a crisis. I, I, some of the people are fearing. I'm not smart enough to ask a question like that, but you can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the, the point is that when there, last time it happened, 2013, I think, uh, 2013, uh, when the withdrawal was talked about. Uh, but I think this time, uh, having the experience of 2013, the withdrawal of the stimulus may not be that, um, but by the medium term, I think medium term, short term, definitely things are better. My assessment is short term, things are better. Uh, medium term, a bit of a question mark. But I think significant changes I see in the next 10 years in the, in the geopolitical situation. Most important that has happened after the crisis and more recently is the issue of policy space for national government. And the globalization happened, particularly globalization of finance. Global, uh, regulation, banking regulation, uh, finance is global, regulation is national. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? As simple as that. Now, in the process of globalization of capital, what has happened is many governments feel that their, their capacity, their policy space to meet the expectations of the people is constrained by globalization. So I think there's this, 
This has been happening. The rate of growth of global trade has come down. Rate of global. So now we require. We are searching for a new balance between global and national. New balance between state and market. New balance between finance and non-finance, real sector. I think that is the search that's going on. We see that in many countries, including yes. our own. Yes. And so what I'm saying is the type of political controversies are not because of one individual. In some ways, that is a product of this rebalancing process. And finally, you also have the, 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 the big difference like real and finance. Real activity is shifting. Real activity is shifting to the east. Finance is still fully with the west. The demography, working population is shifting to the east. The world age is shifting to the west, though China may come there. And these mega trends will affect the savings pattern, the consumption pattern, the labor force. So I, the way I look at it is this will be transforming two things, demography and technology. There will be a transformative demography and transformative technology five to 10, 10 to 15 years over a fear of environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So these three uh, will be the biggest challenge for global economy, in my view. Let's go ahead and open it up. I know we've got some questions here. Ma'am, in the purple shirt. Hi, Jeff independent researcher on, uh, on Asia. I'd like to ask former Governor uh, Reddy, um, based on the statistics we have here, China may become the third largest economy by 2030. However, its labor force is only 510 million. Its middle class only 267. So uh, in your view, sir, how do you see India reaching its third largest economy status based on resources, capital, technology, and labor force? Now for Dr. Aris, um, I'd like to ask you because of your service uh, recently for the administration, um, how does India, third largest economy status, say it reached in 2030, translate into mil military power to counter China strategy of one belt, one road in the contested South China Sea? And by so, what is U.S. you know, view of development in India concerning its look east policy? I don't know. I, uh, I, I didn't say anything of what you are saying. Is there anything in? Oh, I'm sorry, that's Dr. Uh, for, yes. Which which? Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think I ever wrote anything like that. It must be background not prepared for the discussion. Okay. I compliment myself for anticipating this question <laughs> because in the initial remarks, if you recall, in the initial remarks I mentioned, that is not about rising economic power because I was talking only about my experience about what happens in India. So I am not a party to any statement that India will be the third biggest economy. It may happen, that's a different matter. I mean, that's not something which is my stand any time, that's my limited. The, the, 
Yeah, 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 no, no. That's the title of the discussion of the book. And what we are saying is that, what I was trying to also explain is, that it was not even noticed, as told you, Selig Harrison said it will break up. Till ni- 1968. Then Asian drama Gunnar Mirdal. What did Gunnar Mirdal say? Gunnar Mirdal said that it's a soft state. It was a condemned situation. And then finally, let me again say, why what the background of what we are talking about, I think, economic part. I'm, I'm saying, I, I didn't say that, but still. In 1947, there are very few people who thought that India will survive as a country. Especially in Great Britain. And today, the threat is coming from Scotland. To Great Britain, something which was not dreamt of. And I think very few people in the world believed that democracy will survive in the developing countries at all. Tell me in how many countries there is, you have a situation where emergency was declared after two, after two years, elections are ordered. And what I didn't write in the book, when the elections were ordered, when the counting was going on, there was a call from the Prime Minister to the district collector who was in charge of election, election hearing. The district collector said, I will not accept the call till I complete the counting and do the certificate of the numbers. That's all. So, over a period, and then if you see the Supreme Court judgments, including the ordinance on privacy, it may not be the perfect, but what I'm saying is, many things have happened, and my theme basically is, that over a period we have built it as a nation and uh, there are many issues. So I would say that uh, if you want to, I want to say raising economic power, but definitely this is, this proved to be perhaps one of the most stable systems. Even if there's political instability, there's a stable system. So if, I, if some investor asks me what, where, you should, where you should invest, I will say yes, perhaps China or many places will get a lot of money, but one thing, if you want to diversify the risk, relatively stable system, you better put some money in India. So I think this concept of rising economic power, don't, it's, it's the concept is a broader context, not just economic performance. Now, I don't want to take up from Dr. Reddy's time because we're really here to listen to him. Ma'am, on the second part of your question, all I'll, I'll offer is that uh, certainly India has been undertaking one of the world's largest military modernizations. This is well documented. Um, the India-U.S. defense relationship has expanded very dramatically over the course of the last 10, 15 years. Secretary Mattis was just in India, as you saw, uh, and successive U.S. Uh, secretaries of defense now routinely refer to India as a net provider of regional security. So India is, is taking on a, a regional leadership role in defense and security quite different from where it was, let's say, 20 years ago. Um, sir, you had a question. You had your hand up. Uh, Tom Timberg, consultant. Your speech raised all kinds of very interesting questions, but I might as well bother you with a big one, which is you mentioned that the growth has been somewhat paused since 2014 uh, of the the economy as compared to the period from 1990 to 2014. People have been talking it's a lower growth rate um, than in the previous decade and so forth. Do you think that this means that, as some critics have said, the central bank needs to adjust to a new normal and uh, adjust the whole economy to a much lower level of interest rates? Uh, 
न्यू नॉर्मल इन इंडिया रिजर्व बैंक हैज बिन यूज टू वट इज इन कंपेरेटिव टर्म्स रेलेटिवली हाई लेवल ऑफ इंटरेस्ट रेट्स फॉर द इकोनॉमी एंड हैज नॉट मूवड सफिशियंटली to reduce those rates in the economy as a whole but the question is is that correct or incorrect to to i think i think generally it's a universal phenomenon all over the world generally the governments want the interest rates to be low and the central bank tries to keep it up so in that sense it's not a very uh, unusual situation uh, but uh, if i may put in a more uh, so this this and i don't know whether sub the british Uh, yes, Prime Minister. There is a show, BBC show. Yes, oh, yeah, yes, Prime Minister. Sure. In fact, there is one episode, and the Prime Minister wants to appoint somebody who is very good, correct as governor. All the discussions goes on, and then this Cabinet Secretary, who very effectively, quietly says that, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, the elections are due in the next year, so the governor may not be as accommodative in interest rates. And then he didn't get the job. so this is something that keeps happening but on a more uh, informal note um, mr arun jaitley the new finance minister one day asked me after about a year or two in one to one chat he asked me what do you think do you think this interest rates by uh, rbi you know they are keeping is it appropriate to keep it uh, that low he asked me what is my opinion so i said i don't know So, so what do you mean you don't know? You have been farmer governor. You should be able to say something. As, as, do you think it's lower than what it should be? Are there? Sir, even as governor, I did not know what are the right interest rates. <laughs> it was a matter of judgment. In most of the time, because the, you are forecasting, you are doing many factors go in, many factors go in, uh, and therefore it's a matter of judgment. uh and therefore i i think the simple assumption particularly in the indian conditions uh whether the low interest rate will spur growth or not for instance what is the source of the slower growth i'll give you an illustration if the diagnosis of slower for slower growth is the choking of the banking system will lower interest rate help so why much depends on what you think is problem If it is a supply side problem, how does low interest rate help? So therefore, I think one has to be highly contextual and more important, deep knowledge. In fact, inside knowledge. I don't have deep knowledge. I don't have inside knowledge. <laughs> therefore, I continue to insist that I don't know. <laughs> But when I was in, as governor, I was so well informed that I realized that I did not know. <laughs> I think, think we're witnessing a little bit of the famous. Tricks of the trade, right here. <laughs> uh, this side, questions? Yes, ma'am. Right here. Denise Leonard, formerly IFC India. Um, Non-performing assets. In the 90s, you, the RBI strengthened the requirement for recognition of non-performing assets by the banking sector, and then you changed. Then there was a new bankruptcy law in 2016. Would you, but there's still a serious non-performing asset problem. Would you start thinking that it may not 
be completely, <laughs> what percentage would you say now is administrative with respect to bankruptcy and what percentage is bad credit decisions by the banks? I did get the... Um, I think she's asking you to t take a guess at the percentage. Of well, no, I'm saying not percentage. I'm saying the non-performing assets of the public sector banks is extremely high. The last RBI report pulls that together. I'm saying what now, you've done a lot of reforms related to bankruptcy. Obviously, it takes time to implement them. But what also is a function of not administration of bankruptcy, but bad credit decision? In well, you're talking about contemporary. I think, again, I would submit, uh, on contemporary situation, I'm not, uh, uh, I, I'm not in a position to comment how, but I think everybody agrees that bankruptcy code is a good development. The, there is a large non-performance asset. Something has to be done. Automatically recapitalizing does not help. Um, so I think beyond that, uh, I'm not in a position to say anything particular. But only one thing I would say, uh, I would highlight, we must make a distinction between banking crisis and public sector banking crisis. In, in, in this case, it is only the, the, the quote-unquote of the problem is public sector, which accounts for about 55% or something. Okay. Many of the times when you talk of banking crisis, it's the banking sector as a whole. Here, private sector banking, large banks are not under stress. It becomes news because the burden is on the government as the owner to inject extra capital. That's why it's becoming news. Second, if you see many of the banking crises, they are part of the bigger crisis because of external sector induced, as in East Asia, uh, or in, in Europe because the linkage between the banks and the sovereign debt. In, and most of the developing countries, banking crisis were part of a bigger problem and that had to be solved through IMF program. And the program said what should be done. In Asian crisis, Korea, etc., they have to privatize. So here is an interesting crisis. It's not that much of a crisis. And the government of India has the luxury of being able to design its solution of a problem without a gun on its head. Whether they should do it or not, how they should do it, that's a different matter. But in a comparative perspective, it is, it is getting attention because of fiscal implications of the crisis being in the public sector bank. But if you ask if it's a crisis, when the private sector bank is in a crisis, the government bails out. Therefore, where is the question of a crisis when the banks themselves are public sector? The whole concept of income recognition is whether the capital is adequate to take care of the interest of the depositor. All the capital acquisition, non-performing asset classification, the whole exercise is done to ensure that a bank as an entity has adequate capital to take care of the interest of the depositor. Here the sovereign is the owner. It's not a limited liability company. It's a bank under law. So these are prescribed in the normal circumstances. So I, I, I think therefore we should, we should analyze the, the situation of the Indian banking crisis as an Indian banking public sector crisis which has resulted in certain choking of the banking activity and a large burden on the taxpayer. It is not the type of crisis that has been faced in the rest of the world in the past in different countries. That's all I can say analytically. Is that okay? Sure, yeah. We've had a couple other hands over here, sir. And then we'll go to him after that. 
Pleasure listening to you, Dr. Reddy. Uh, I worked in Andhra Pradesh from the World Bank on the power sector restructuring. Mm -hmm. So I heard a lot about you, never had a chance to meet with you. So pleasure to um, hear you today. Uh, let me, I'll try to ask you a question on which I hope you'll not be able to say I do not know. Never know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take my chances. <laughs> uh, the question is on this, on the Indian economy, the structure of the Indian economy. And I think there's a huge vulnerability that perhaps we may not be paying much attention to, or maybe we are, but, uh, but, but uh, I don't hear it uh, that much in the discussions. Today, the Indian economy, 84% um, of that comes from, the GDP comes from manufacturing and services. And 16% comes from agriculture, which is great. Uh, but the problem is that 65% of the population lives in rural areas and implicitly depends on agriculture. So 84% of the economy is growing at 8%, which benefits by and large 35% of the population. 16% of the economy is growing at 2%, long-term average growth, and 65% of the population depends on that 16%. In, even if you provide for some channels of transfer between the, between the two, two, two uh, segments of the economy. This inequality, do you see that this inequality, is it sustainable? Will it leave enough political space for the future reforms that need to happen? Or will it shrink the political space as well as the fiscal space for the government? Because then they will have to take care of the through, through welfare measures, this uh, 65%. And the, the additional thing is, you are, India is adding 1 million unemployed every month, which is 10 million people being added every year to the unemployed. They cannot be absorbed by agriculture, which is already only very marginally viable. They have to be absorbed only by the skill sector and the industry and the services, which is unable to absorb 10 million. So do you think these are the huge vulnerabilities which could then come back to haunt and slow down the growth rate? Murphy, you made such a convincing case that there is vulnerability. How can I deny? I mean, you're right. But let me put it most, that it is a big problem, accepted. That the solution is not short-term, accepted. You can't shift the population of millions of people. Second. Third, what do you do in the meantime? This is the other issue, apart from tech. And there you will find a reference to my book. I'll sell you my book now. Is is loan waiver? Is loan waiver? In fact, I have explained. I didn't explain in detail the conversation between the prime minister and me as a governor. There's a time, there's a discussion between the prime minister and me as a governor when this loan issue came. There's exactly the issue when so much of population is dependent on agriculture. The per capita income growth in agriculture is one percent. Whereas the per capita income growth in non-agriculture population is 8%, 9%. So how long can they wait? So in fact, the learn waiver at that point of view was argued on the basis that, that is, you have to buy social, uh, or social order. You don't want uh, social tensions. I've explained in detail. I have explained, not detail, shortly, but we had a huge discussion with the finance minister, prime minister, and I, because it was something which we felt strongly should not be done, but it was done. Uh, so it's not as though uh, there's lack of consciousness, uh, but it, 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 the, the, the political economy uh, is very important. Let me again give one simple example. In India, always people feel why there is no right ideology. 
right ide- right ideology the left left either even bjp is sort of uh, uh, right of center but not left of center any party which comes it is not at come but look back in 1953 when our session took place was this pattern there was an opposition led by former governor general only indian governor general of india rajagopalachari a leader of the same standing as uh, as mahatma gandhi and he started a swatantra party a rightist party and many intellectuals joined there they are wiped out they are wiped out so the problem is is not only saying what is desirable but in a democracy it takes time just as reforms are delayed now whether it's good for the country bad for the country is the right thing to do i'm not in a position to judge but there is my point is it is not i don't assume that the politician does not know the problem politicians pursue the problem better than us but the fact is that they have interests also like anybody else uh, i i'll only conclude with one conversation with the chief minister as the chief minister the conversation with the chief minister was that he wanted some projects to be given here there his constituency type of thing how can you keep thinking your constituency your constituency this 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 is not how it is and so informally as planning finance secretary i said that he laughed and he said ha ah, you know suppose i prescribe that every 5 years you have to appear for an examination to retain the same job you'll be preparing for the exam to retain the job more than working that's what i am doing and see how i get my term back so i think those are the compulsions and so that's why I, in the book also i make a distinction if you, the, the the academics or economists look for what is desirable a typical administrator starts uh, looks at what is feasible and what in my career i was trying to do was first find out what is feasible or what is desirable find out what is desirable and then bring to the notice of the decision making authorities this is desirable then as you go towards feasible how much price you are paying for compromising with the desirable then the distance away from the uh, feasible and uh, for the desirable is reduced so that is so there is nothing like and uh, finally uh, one one um, finance commission i had three economists sir economists are supposed to produce solutions no huh? that is they think they do <laughs> see four members of finance commission i was the chairman for the first time three economists were there in the finance commission and the discussions were going on at the end of the towards the end of the commission i said after my experience with three economists my respect for politicians has gone up <laughs> i said that's why i said look three of you could never agree what's the right thing to do so how can i find fault with what the politician is doing if you can't say what is the right thing how can you be wrong if you can't agree in what is right and secondly therefore there is no absolute standards of correct uh, solution but as i said your problem stating are entirely correct but the feeling that is they are not aware not entirely right and sir over here yeah thank you uh, dr ree Uh, Howard Marks. I formerly worked at the Department of Agriculture, U.S. Department of Agriculture. At the time, we had an office in New Delhi, the Far Eastern Regional Research Office, as you probably know, under the PL 480 program, yes, Food for yes, Peace yes. program, that the uh, U.S. government uh, 
was the second holder after the Bank of India of rupees. Yes. The second holder. So it's a very proud record. And just to follow up on my roommates here, we haven't met, but I enjoyed what he had to say about agriculture. With the great gains that were made during the Green Revolution under Dr. Borlaug, Norman Borlaug, if that really... It was all a gift from USA in some senses. I think it's something we could all be proud of as Americans of what we did for India. And um, So in your position, um, how much, uh, how much uh, of your resources were allocated to uh, especially agricultural research? I know during the 60s and 70s and well into the 80s, that was a huge uh, priority for the Indian government. It's still, I understand today, there is a problem with malnourishment in some of the villages. Not hunger, but malnourishment, still problems with water, sewage, etc. So how much going to uh, rural development and specifically agricultural research development? Thank you. Uh, I'll answer only a limited, I mean, I, we have discussed about the importance and I must acknowledge the contribution uh, both PL40, though it was controversial, PL480 and subsequent research into agricultural, whether it's agricultural revolution, whether it is uh, IITs, whether it is IIMs, USA has participated. It's not fully recognized in perhaps bilateral relations. And that's because the interregnum of a slight misunderstanding in 67. Uh, but uh, on the limited uh, issue of what, what I could do, <laughs> In the sense that uh, I come from a rural background, so I, I tilt, perhaps. In, uh, so we doubled the uh, credit to agriculture in three and a half years. But even while doubling, I made it clear that there's going to be a problem. See, the problem with credit to agriculture is that agriculture is, has too many risks. Too many risks. Even the power, power supply is not, or power supply itself is not regular. Water supply is not regular because of the water systems. The market because of the controls regime. So there are many things that are affecting agriculture. With the result, it's not the credit that is the real issue. And the market interest rate is so high, the official interest rate is so low, there's a temptation to arbitrage and you can't direct it. And so these are the limitations, and these can't be solved simply by agriculture credit. But still recognizing that only to prove that something has to be done, we did that. So my limited point is uh, that it's a big problem, as mentioned. A lot of things have to be done. Uh, but there it is. But I think China is doing well in terms of diverting uh, from uh, agriculture to non-agriculture. We've got time for one last question before we're going to... Uh, disperse and have a book signing uh, out there. Any last questions? Okay, well then please join me in thanking Dr. Reddy for his remarks. Outside of this room, we've got books available uh, for sale and signing. So hope you all are as enthusiastic about this as I have been. It's a very good book. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Reddy. Thank you very much.